Like homelessness, suicide among veterans is a persistent and tragic problem. The Veterans Affairs Department has been working for years to prevent it. Now the Government Accountability Office has come out with some recommendations on how VA can better staff up and use its suicide prevention teams. Here with more, the GAO's Director of Healthcare Issues, Deborah Draper. Ms. Draper, good to have you back. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me to discuss our work. What you have pointed out is that since 2018, VA has stepped up efforts to identify and work with veterans that might be at risk of suicide through teams located throughout its medical centers. Is that fair way to describe the architecture of this? Yeah, well, based on the most recent data available, 18 veterans die by suicide every day. And veterans have a higher rate of suicide as compared to the general population. And in its current strategic plan, VA identifies suicide prevention as its top clinical priority. And VA uses suicide prevention teams at its local facilities to carry out its suicide prevention activities. And these are activities such as monitoring veterans identified as being at high risk for suicide. And these teams include a number of different types of staff, suicide prevention coordinators and case managers. Membership on the team is not a person's only job, then, it sounds like. Well, it could be. I mean, they may have a range of activities, but for suicide prevention coordinators in particular, that is their main job is to conduct suicide prevention activities. And do we know how they identify those particular veterans in that facility that might be at risk of suicide? Well, they identify them depending on their clinical situation, and they tend to flag these veterans that are high risk for suicide. So, for example, we spoke with a number of suicide prevention teams, and they consistently told us that they carry a fairly high caseload of veterans who've been identified as being at high risk for suicide. And it ranges from facility to facility, but as one suicide prevention team told us, they carry a caseload of about 150 to 200 veterans who have been identified as being at high risk for suicide. In some ways, it sounds as if the initiative to establish these teams back in 2018 caused more people to come into the orbit of the teams simply because they have special radar, I guess you might say, out looking for people that might be at risk of suicide. You know, part of their activities is to really closely monitor veterans and to really identify those that have been deemed at high risk. And this includes, you know, working with providers, working with other providers in the facility. So, They have a pretty robust system of identifying veterans who are at risk for suicide. And once they identify them, what happens? What do the teams actually do once they say, hey, this person is at risk? Well, they continue to monitor veterans, and they do this through a number of different ways, one of which is that they maintain contact with veterans, whether it's in person or whether it's by telephone, to make sure that they're doing well and that there are issues that they identify those and have the veteran seek additional assistance or bring them into the facility and work with the veterans more closely. Sure. And is one of the issues that it's very hard to measure the metrics of the program because the metric is something that does not happen, that is a suicide? Yeah, well, you know, part of what they told us, that we talked with a number of suicide prevention teams, and they told us consistently that their workload has increased over time. And this is particularly true as veterans are identified, more veterans are being identified as being at risk for suicide. And the increasing number of activities associated with VA's suicide prevention program is also adding to workloads. And teams are saying that this is creating challenges, including burnout and turnover. Caseloads vary, but a team, as I said, a team from one facility said that they carry from about 150 to 200 veterans that have been identified at high risk for suicide. And VA told us that they're taking a number of steps in response to concerns about caseloads. 
and they recently made changes to their guidance and technical assistance, which may help address some of the concerns. For example, VA has initiated monthly calls for teams to obtain answers to questions they may have, including providing technical assistance beyond what might have been addressed elsewhere. But the bottom line is that VA has not conducted an evaluation or an assessment of, you know, the effects of a program growth on workload. And we believe we made a recommendation and we believe that, you know, conducting such an evaluation will go a long way to help address the identified challenges. We're speaking with Deborah Draper. She's director of healthcare issues at the Government Accountability Office. And of course, you don't fix a problem by evaluating it necessarily, but what would the evaluation look at? What are the criteria they might evaluate the programs by? What we recommend is that they, you know, look at the factors such as what's causing the increased workloads. We know that they've added a lot of activities over time. And the other thing is that suicide rates vary from one facility to another. So they use a benchmark to determine staffing needs, but that benchmark does not take into account those factors, which we also made a recommendation and we think is important for that benchmark that they use to determine staffing needs to take into account the increased workload, the suicide rates that may vary from facility to facility. So that was another recommendation we had made. Sure. I guess there's no one size fits all literally in this particular case. And and that's true because I think facilities experience different rates of suicide, uh, differing numbers of veterans who have been identified as high risk. So there's a lot of factors that go into um, making a determination of what are adequate staffing. Do we know if the nature of the location has anything to do with the suicide rates, for example, rural versus urban? Well, it could. I mean, like you said, one size doesn't fit all. Every facility differs in terms of the types of populations they see, the number of veterans that are at risk for suicide, and other factors that may go into determining what staffing needs might be or what veterans' needs might be. So, you know, it's really important to determine those local facilities' needs and factor that into what's needed for these suicide prevention teams. And what does VA say about those recommendations so far? Well, VA concur with our recommendations and and their response to our report. They identified steps that they were taking to implement changes that would address the recommendations. So they could have more teams potentially at areas where there are high numbers and and high workloads? Well, they could. I mean, it it will depend on, you know, what the assessments, uh, the evaluations look like and also, you know, other factors that, you know, may go into that decision. One thing I will say, recent legislation, um, one of the, the points that they made in their response to us was that recent legislation requires them to particularly look at a number of things around suicide prevention, including the role of the suicide prevention coordinator. So that will also make a determination as to what these teams might ultimately look like. Deborah Draper is Director of Healthcare Issues at the Government Accountability Office. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series Lessons in Leadership what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, great men 
theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader. All of these are backward-looking um, development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your, a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service, which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an organization? 
Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. I've led, this is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime. And uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.